Amen. I thought you all were going to stand as I preached. Oh, okay, you guys sit down here. That's interesting. All right, my name is Dwight. I'm one of the pastors of Church 21. I primarily, I've been downtown, uh, but we have four different locations in Church 21, West Island, South Shore, uh, NDG Verdun, and then downtown. And so uh, it's such a joy to get to see so many people from Church 21 West Island, but also a lot of faces I, I don't yet know from, from Reach. And I'm so happy to uh, fill in for, for Dustin uh, today. And I, I like filling in for Dustin because we're about the same size. And oftentimes I go in and there's like a pulpit that's like up here. And I feel like I need a stool. And one time someone gave me a stool and that was awkward because I said something. You're not supposed to say something when someone gives you a stool. Anyway, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go. All right. Jesus, thank you that you are here. Thank you as, as we sang, Spirit of God, that you're welcome here. The reality is, is that you're welcoming us into your presence. That you're here, you're already working. You're, you already know what you're going to do. You know the things that you're going to encourage us with, the things that you're going to show us about ourselves that we don't want to look at, but we have to see so that we see that those aren't going to bring us life and yet you take our face and you don't stuff it in those things but then you turn us back to King Jesus and you show us how he is so much better than the things that we've been running after. And so we want that. We want to hear from you. I am not interested in giving some religious soliloquy uh, this morning. I'm not interested in just sermonizing. I want for your power to, to come out of me and to go into us and that, that you would cause us to be a people that, is, that are obsessed, infatuated with you. And that we would be so infatuated that we would leave here to go and saturate our, our different places uh, within the city. So we love you. Speak to us, please. Amen. So we're in the book of Proverbs. We're going through Proverbs completely as, as a church, Reach Montreal and Church 21. And so we're going to be in, actually, we're going to look at one verse this morning. Okay, Proverbs 18 to 21. So you're like, great, we'll be out of here in 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, right. All right, so we're actually going to look at that one verse, and then we're going to look at the entire Bible, right? So buckle up. I think they're ordering pizza for everyone. The sermon's going to be so long. Um, but let me start with love songs. How many of you like love songs? All right, great, amazing. Uh, so love songs are wonderful because what they do is, you know, you, get, you feel the feeling sometimes and you don't really have the words to express that. And someone uh, much more gifted than us with words and music puts words to the feelings that we feel so that we can play that song for someone and say, hey, this is what I think of when I think about you. But one of the love songs that I really think missed the point completely, the version I know is sung by Alison Krauss, I think is how you say your name. And the, the line is, you say it best when you say nothing at all. And it's like, how did that actually fly? And it's like, oh, a woman is singing that to a man. Because if a man sang that, that would not fly, would it? It's like, honey, you're so beautiful when you're not talking. It's wonderful. I feel, I feel all the feelings for you, right? You say it best when you say nothing at all. I don't know how that, how that song succeeded at all, but it did. But as we look at the book of Proverbs, let me read you a verse. Because this... That, that song actually ripped off the, the book of Proverbs a little bit. Proverbs 17, 28 says this. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. So men, there is real wisdom for us in the book of Proverbs this morning. But I say all that to say this. Words are really important. 
Words are really, really important. There's about 90-ish proverbs, I don't know the exact number, 90-ish proverbs that speak to us wisdom about the words that we say or the words that we hear or what we're supposed to do with the words that come at us. And all of us have been impacted by words, haven't we? All of us. Uh, how many of us have been hurt by someone's words? All right, the rest of you are like, I'm just not participating. Whatever he says, I'm not doing. That's fine. That's me, right? If you're into Enneagram, I'm an eight. If you're not, if you think Enneagram's so weird, I do too some days, okay? But like anything that you tell me what to do, I'm like, I don't want to do that, right? So I get you. Um, how many of you have been encouraged by someone else's words? Great. How many of you have spoken words that as you're saying them, you're like, you want them back? You're like, oh, I don't mean to say it. Yeah, two of us, right? Just a few. Okay, the sermon's really for us, all right? The three of us in the room. How many of you wish that you had said some things that you didn't actually say? Right, words are so important. The thing is, we're responsible for the words, aren't we? This whole idea, when people say, well, I just have no filter. I'm like, well, that's your problem. That's your issue. You have major issues. That's not an excuse. You don't get to wear a t-shirt and say whatever you want and blast the world. People who say, hey, I'm a truth teller. I just say it how it is. It's like, I don't want to be friends with you, really. Because I know that you're not just saying it how it is. You're saying it how you think it should be. There's a reason why in the United States they have a Fifth Amendment, right? That you can claim the Fifth in a court proceedings because we say stupid things. And it's like, instead of saying stupid things, I'm just going to keep my mouth closed. See, the Bible is really, really clear. We believe in the Bible. We believe that God speaks to us through the Bible. If you're here and you're like, I don't believe that, man, I'm so glad that you're here. Because at one point, I, I didn't believe that either. And yet God came after me with his word. And so if he can come after someone like me, I believe he can come after anyone. And so the big, big idea of the Bible is that we would make much of God that we would live the way that God intends for us to live. And to say it in a churchy way, that we would glorify God in our body. That that's how we would live. And yet what Proverbs is telling us is like, yeah, 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 do that, glorify God in your body, but start with your mouth. Start with your mouth. Your mouth is really, really important. So let me read the one verse that we're gonna be in this morning. Proverbs 18, verse 21. Proverbs is also, if you're like, I don't know where Proverbs is. Number one, there's a cheat code in the Bible. At the front, there's a table of contents. You can find Proverbs. But secondly, if you go right about to the middle of your Bible, the Proverbs is there. So Proverbs 18 to 21. I'm sure Dustin did a whole thing on who wrote Proverbs and why and all that. So I'm not going to get into that this morning. But Proverbs 18 to 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. I'll read it again, because it's not long. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Here's the very sobering thing, is that on your tongue right now, death and life sit. You have the opportunity today to build someone up, encourage them, or to cut them down and belittle them, right? That power is with you today. I know in Canada, we can't have guns, we can't holster them, but, We have ammunition right here. The form of, most of us have a pink tongue, right? So in the form of some pinkish thing, we have a weapon or something that can build people up. And so what I wanna do today is I'm gonna go through the entire Bible, okay? Real quick. I'm gonna go through the entire Bible and look at words, the importance of words 
and where words started. And then I want to end by looking at wisdom. All right, and this won't take as long as you probably think it will take. But I've seen Dustin's sermons. He preaches long. All right, so I know if I'm under a certain time, I won't even say the time. The time shall not be mentioned. It's like Voldemort here, right? Won't mention that time. And I'll just stay under it and I'll be fine. Um, okay, so let's look at the very first word that we know. All right, so if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Dustin said, hey, send me slides of uh, the different verses that we put on the screen. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. One, because I was coming back from Spain on Friday and I was tired. And secondly, I think it's really good that, that we actually paw through our, our Bibles and that we understand where things are at and how they make up the big story. Plus, if you have one of these things, you can find it on here. So Genesis chapter 1, very first book in the Bible, third verse in, here we see the first words that we know of that are spoken. And God said. So God invented words, first of all. God's the first one to speak a word. And God said, let there be light and there was light. And then God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. So God's first thing that he says is let there be light. And then he evaluates it and says, that's good. He speaks it out. Don't you wish you could speak things? I don't think, are any of my kids in here? No, they're all, okay. My wife is like giving me a hardcore no. I wish that I would say something and my kids would do it. Right? It's like, just pick up that thing. It's like, yeah, 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 later. It's like, now. Like, right now. And you realize how limited your authority of, of words are in that moment. And God's like, watch this. Let there be light. And there is. And that light is not a bad light that's, that's going to kill us. It's a light that is very good. It brings life. Right? We know for so many things to actually have life, they need light. And this is what God does. He, he speaks a word. It brings good. And when we see the goodness that God is speaking about in Scripture, we can equate that with life. That God's words bring life. God's not a God that's all talk. He's not a God that's all talk. He doesn't just love in words and, and say that he's going to do these things. He actually does them. He's a God of deeds. He, he gets up and does things. He creates from nothing. Uh, the, the fancy word is ex nihilo. That God doesn't go to a closet full of light that someone else had somewhere, pull it out and says, okay, we're going to use this. He doesn't go to Home Depot, buy a bulb and, and twist it in and say, okay, there it is. He creates it from nothing. His words bring life. His words bring life and all of it is from him. And then he names them, right? In verse 5 it says, God called the light day. So his words don't just call things into being. He also categorizes them and labels them. Any of you like label makers? Yeah, there's one here. Okay, two. Some of you are closet label makers. You're like, I don't want to admit that. I don't want to be made fun of in that way, right? But God is a label maker. He's like, I'm going to put a name on these things because this is good. And this pattern is repeated six times throughout the, the early part of Genesis. And then he creates human beings. So jump over to Genesis chapter two, verse 16 and 17. And what we see is the first encounter of wisdom that's given. So wisdom comes from outside of us. Any of you who are, have been told, you just need to look inside for wisdom, you've been lied to, right? That wisdom comes from without, it comes outside of us. And so God creates humanity and then he speaks wisdom into their reality. Listen to this, Genesis chapter two, verse 16 and 17. The Lord commanded the man saying, 
you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, I don't know if any of you have read kids' Bibles where they have pictures of these two trees in the middle of the garden. It would be like the middle of their living room, right? I don't know if you've ever had a tree growing in the middle of your living room. Kind of strange. Maybe you live in a tree house. I don't know. But there's these two trees in the middle of the garden, in the middle of their living room, and every day they would have to walk by them. And probably they were exactly the same type of tree, Except God said, this tree is going to bring life and this tree is going to bring death. Eat of this tree, not this tree. And they say, but I'm evaluating. I don't see anything wrong with eating this except that God said, don't do it. That's wisdom, that God brings wisdom to us. And this is really where Proverbs 18.21, the verse that we read at the beginning, that's where it finds its origin that words of death and life are on the tongue, that God says, I'm putting life and death in front of you every single day. Are you going to trust me or are you gonna trust your own wisdom? Which one are you going to do? See, God wants life. Some of us have, an, have a weird idea of God. We think that he's masochistic. We think that he's sitting like a t-ball player, you know, up in heaven, just waiting for your life to get onto that tee so he can finally blast you. You think that God is pursuing us with, with suffering and, and death and that he's this God that loves to just kind of throw lightning bolts of suffering into our lives, but that's not who he is. He made us for life. He made us for himself. He wants for us to keep choosing him. But he's saying as he put these two trees in the garden, you can choose death if you want. You can choose death if you want. The next word that we see is from a man. Listen to verse 23. This is just after God had created woman. Verse 23, the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. This is our first understanding of, of poetry from a human perspective, right? Men have been writing love songs since the beginning of time. You see, to put the right woman in front of them. And Adam just spontaneously blurts out, like, she is gorgeous. She is beautiful. She's not like the raccoons and possums and squirrels, black and gray and white, right? All those squirrels that live amongst us. She is nothing like them. She's nothing like them. I want her. So we, we're, we're tracking with these words so far. Right? We have a word that calls things into creation. We have a word that is a label maker. We have a word of wisdom. And then we have a word that sees and recognizes beauty. These are what God is doing with words so far. But then, then this almost like anti-word comes into the picture. There's this other authority that slithers onto the scene of the garden, comes into their living room. And gives a word opposite of the word that's been given to them about where life is going to come from. Listen to Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. Actually, let me start in, in verse 1, the second part. The serpent said to the woman, now I'm just going to do a whole lot of work in about two seconds. We believe that the serpent is Satan. We believe in a, in a real literal devil. And you're like, that's crazy. It's like, I know, I know. Just track with me, okay? He said to the woman... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the, the 
fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's like the kid that you send out, you know, from your house. This isn't my kids. My kids always obey and do exactly what we ask them to do. But some other family down the road, you know, they send out their kids and they tell them, definitely don't do this, right? Don't, this morning it was about like jumping on the trampoline. They were like two, one family only allows two kids on the trampoline. So it's like, you know, that kid comes and he's like, oh, my mom said only two people. And it's like, did your mom actually say only two kids on the trampoline? He's like, I, I don't know. You know, like drool, it's like, I think your mom said two times two. I think you can do four. He's like, I can't do math. It's like, that's okay, I can do math. And I think that you can jump with three other friends. Would you like that? Like, yeah, I would like that, cool, right? It's that type of thing that's happening in the garden. It's like, did your dad actually say this? That wasn't what he meant. You misinterpreted it. Let me be the commentary for you. Let me bring light to the truth that actually he meant. And what this enemy is saying is that God is keeping real life from you. There's real life to be had. You can carpe diem all day long. You can go and grab it. Take the bull by its horns. Live your best life now, whatever garbage we've been sold. That ultimately this other authority is saying there's a flaw in your maker. But don't worry, I'm here to fix it. Don't worry, I'm here to bring you the real truth. It's a lie. It's a lie. And when they ate of the fruit of that tree that they weren't supposed to, it brought death. It brought death upon themselves. And we can't get into all that this morning. But the big idea is that we need to be discerning with the words that come to us. If you listen or watch media at all, please do not think that they have your best interest in mind. They are coming with a certain angle. That's why we have multiple news outlets because they all have their own angle that they wanna come through. And especially the ones who are like, no, 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 we're in the middle, we're for sure in the middle. It's like, but which middle are you in? We have to be discerning with the words that come at us because they will bring death. I read a story this morning, I was flipping through CNN uh, on my phone. I don't take them as a reliable source of news. I, I really take any, right? So I read multiple, but on CNN, there was a, a story of a 17 year old who committed suicide. Really sad story. But the reason why he committed suicide was because he received an image on his phone from someone saying, hey, I know who you are. I think that you're a really handsome guy. Uh, check out my pick. He did, and he said, hey, send me a picture back of you. Very awkward picture, of course, uh, right? Sent the awkward picture back, and then the person said, hey, if you don't give me $5,000, I'm gonna send this picture to your whole family, and I'm gonna post it online. And he's like, I don't have $5,000. He had $150. He sent that to them. They said, if you don't get it to us by the end of the day, we're gonna do this. And so he committed suicide. Really, really sad, real story. But we have to be discerning with the words that come at us. We have to be discerning with who is bringing us a message and what they actually want from us because so many people want our death. We have a real enemy that wants our death. And he'll do whatever it is to cause it to happen. You see, and when our first parents ate of the fruit, they became what they ate. They became 
this, this death, this, this spreading, an anti-word, because, and again, we don't have the time to get into all of it. If you want, you could read Genesis 3 later. If you think I'm boring, read it now, whatever. Um, I'm so happy that people are reading the word of God. And they're like, I read the word of God when you preach. It's like, that's fine. Go ahead and do it because God will still speak to you through that. But they became what they ate. And, and as God came to them in the garden, God didn't teach them how to blame one another. But when he came, he said, hey, did you eat the fruit? He's like, no, 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 no. It wasn't me. It was the woman that you gave to me. If you didn't create her, I wouldn't have done this thing. So then God goes to the woman, hey, did, did you eat? No, no, it was a snake, the serpent that you made. Ultimately, they're saying, God, it's your fault. It's your fault that we did this. If you didn't put us in this situation. And they quickly justified their existence by comparing themselves to one another. No longer were they comparing themselves to God and saying, you're holy, we are not, but we're going to live the way that you want us to live. Now they're saying, I'm worthy of existence because I'm better than her, or at least I'm better than a snake. You know it's a really bad day when you're comparing yourself to a snake, saying you're better than that thing. And that's where this death actually brought humanity to. We start comparing ourselves to others. But here's the thing, God keeps his word. God keeps his word in Genesis 3, verse 19. He said, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. To dust you shall return. God says, you're going to die. God doesn't just say, ah, oh, you know what, buddy? I'll give you a second chance. I know that you really didn't mean to do it. Like, it's okay. As parents, we do that all the time. And God says, I love you so much. And I love my glory so much that I'm, that I'm going to allow for the consequence that I said that I was going to bring to actually take place. But here's the good news. Here's the first word of good news that we see in all of scriptures in Genesis 3.15 after this rebellion begins. He says, God says, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, the evil one, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God essentially says in the same breath, because of these things, you're going to die, but don't worry, I'm going to come after your death. I'm going to come after your death. I'm going to bring good news that I'm going to remove the death that you actually sowed into all of creation. And so now, I told you we're going to do all the Bible. We're going to take a big jump forward into the, what's called the New Testament, right? And we're tracking with the words that God has spoken and God has been trustworthy and true up to this point. He's kept his word. And then we get to the book of John. In John chapter 1, in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the word. And now we see the word not as a concept, but as a person. In the beginning was God the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then we jump down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So this word comes, but not the way that everyone thought it was going to come. This, this word comes as a person, that the word, this, this logos would be the Greek word, this understanding and reason. It comes as, as a person of Jesus being fully God and fully man as a fulfillment of that promise that he makes in Genesis 3.15. So thousands of years later, Jesus comes as a person and he did what none of you could do. He did what Adam and Eve couldn't do. He perfectly obeyed the Father. 
He perfectly looked at these two trees, these proverbial trees, and consistently chose this tree of wisdom and life and righteousness and perfection when all the time you and I keep looking at this tree and saying, this looks really good again. Jesus comes and he does perfectly what Adam, Eve, and all of us could not do for ourselves. He lived perfectly. And as he comes, he doesn't come in this, you know, very strange, weird way. He comes bringing promises. Listen to the promise. You probably know one of these verses, John 3, 16 to 18. Jesus came with this message. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So as Jesus comes, he brings the promise from his dad saying that my dad wants to forgive you. My dad wants to make right with you. My dad wants to bring you into his kingdom. My dad wants to adopt you. My dad wants to give you my inheritance. My dad wants to free you of all the things that you've been bonded by your entire life. My dad loves you so much that I'm here and I'm here to give you a word. And the word is that if you will believe in him, he will give you eternal life. If you will believe in me and what I'm about to do, you will have eternal life. It's not reversing things and somehow going back through some wormhole to get back in time and not eat the fruit of that tree and eat the fruit of this tree. It's trusting that what Jesus did by not eating the fruit of that tree for us is enough for us. That's what Jesus comes to do. And he identifies during his life, he says, hey, that, that serpent, he's a liar. And he's going to consistently lie to us about who God is and who we are. Every single day you have lies that are being spoken to you, shown to you, that are not true about who God is and what he's done. That this serpent in Genesis 3 has a very clear marketing scheme that he wants you to consistently buy his product. And do you know what his product is? It's any product that does not have the cross of Jesus. You see, the enemy would applaud you. You got up early and showed up on a Sunday morning, you freaking heroes. You are amazing. You are incredible. He would applaud you for all these things. He would applaud you to go and be a good person. You see, I think that the enemy would actually love churches that are full of people, but where we just don't speak about the cross. That we tell one another, you can do it. Hannes, you can do it, brother. Brian, you can do it. I know you have it within you. That that's the message from the enemy. The message, the message, the good news that God gives to us is you couldn't do it, so I did it for you. You couldn't have life, so I came and I gave my life for you and then took it back up by rising from the grave so that you could have life, so that you could be brought into my kingdom, so that your guilt and your shame and your stain of sin can be removed, so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be made new, so you can be loved. That's why he came. And the serpent, the serpent just keeps saying every day, you can make yourself new lots of ways except the way of the cross. But the word that we sit under, 
I know, oh man, I ain't got to be fast about this. The word we sit under is the word that Jesus cried out from the cross in John 19.30. He said, it is finished. Done. No more religion to do. You're free. Absolutely free. You don't need to come and show me how good you are. Come and be needy. Come and be blind. Come and be deaf. Come and be helpless. Come and show me that you can't do it, and I'm ready to receive you. Those are the people that Jesus is looking for. Not the people that show up with their little Boy Scout badges saying, look at all the things I've done, Jesus. I started a fire for you. Like, I've earned my way into your kingdom. It's like, that's not how it works. It's that we come with our neediness, our emptiness, our brokenness, and we say, oh, I need you. I, nothing else is working out for me. As you read through, you know what we do? We come to church gatherings and we try and put ourselves all together, right? We try and make it seem like, like everything is just absolutely fine. And we can somehow convince ourselves that the type of person that God is looking for is someone that has it all together. And we, we read about these people like the, the demoniac. Imagine if the demoniac, right? Guy with a few thousand demons comes walking in here today. We're probably gonna be like, get the kids, hide the kids, you know, like who's on security? John, can you take it? How are you at like wrestling takedowns? Like what are we gonna do? And yet Jesus is attracted to those people. The people with leprosy and the people that you're trying to keep away from, right? Jesus is like, oh no, I'm gonna go to them. I'm attracted to them. The woman at the well who was clearly looking for a man, many different men, Jesus is like, oh, I'm attracted to her. I came for her. Jesus is longing for the people that we try not to be. Jesus is longing for us to be needy, and yet we're like, no, I gotta get my act together. Some of us don't come on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon or wherever you meet because it's like, oh, I had a bad week. It's like, well, all of us have in a way. And this is where we come together. Like Netflix, extra coffee, Bailey's coffee on a Sunday morning, whatever you're doing on a Sunday morning, that's not going to put you in front of Christ. Sleeping in has never helped me be like, oh, I feel so much more like Jesus today. Never. It's like, oh, my soul needs this. And even though I don't want to do this, I know that my soul needs this. I need to be told again of who Jesus is and what he's done. And not just by myself in a living room. I need to be reminded by other people who are affirming that, saying, yes, I need that too. I need to have people singing behind me these things, right? Come that fount of every blessing, right? I need you, Jesus, to be my fount. Jesus is not looking for people who have it all together, who have all the right words. He's looking for people who are busted up and know they are because he says, ah, there's someone I can use. And they're not going to try and take all the glory from it. They're not going to create a platform for themselves using my name so that I, they can get out there. Jesus says, it is finished. The curse has been broken. And then as Jesus rises from the dead in John 20, 22, he says to his disciples, receive my Holy Spirit. Receive my Holy Spirit. Do you know what Jesus could have done? Jesus told his followers, hey, I, I'm, I'm going back. I'm going back to heaven. I'm going back to be with my father. They were like, no, 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 stay here. Like, we'll hang out. It'll be amazing. Jesus could have said, okay. He could have done a world tour. He's like, yeah, in 2022, I'll stop by Dorval and like, I'll speak and everyone will believe and they'll see me. They'll put their hands in my side. It'll be, it'll be a great thing. 
Instead of doing a world tour, Jesus says, no, 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 I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna send my spirit into you and greater things he's gonna do in you than you've seen done in my ministry. It's like greater things than you, Jesus? That the things that the spirit of God is gonna do through his people is going to be a global thing. Jesus's ministry was very, very focused, small area. But through the words of his people, this gospel was going to go all over the world. My wife and I were just in Spain uh, this past week, went there for a conference and a few days of vacation. It was amazing. Uh, but, but Paul, as he's writing the book of Romans, we worked through the whole book of Romans, well, part of the book of Romans, at this conference. And Paul's big thing for writing Romans was, I need to get to Spain because people don't know about Jesus there yet. And I need to take the words of the gospel and the power of the spirit and get to Spain with that. It's quite amazing that through the words of the Spirit working through the people of God, the gospel has gone global. It's gone absolutely global. We see this in the book of Acts. We can't look at it. Chapter 2, we see when the Holy Spirit finally comes, the first thing he does, first thing he does is he touches their tongues. Not so that they can enjoy more spicy food or whatever, but he touches his tongues, their tongues in such a way that they start speaking languages that they've never spoken before. And not just a big group to, to make themselves feel good. And it's like, no, no, you speak like this. Shit about a Honda or whatever. It's like, no, these were real languages at the time. Real languages. And these languages were meant to go and minister to people. That they went out in the city and were speaking the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection to people who have never heard this before. And on that first day, 3,000 people were rescued. This would be a huge organizational problem for us. If all of a sudden the windows were open, people were flocking by for some reason, and they're like, you know, strangely drawn, and they hear about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and 3,000 people today were saved. And we almost read Acts, and we say, yeah, 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 that happened back then. But why? Why can't those things happen now? Why can't that same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead and that same spirit that gave people different languages that they'd never spoken about or in that language before... Why, why can't that many people meet Jesus? I was just with a bunch of Europeans and it's like, it, it's so discouraging sometimes sitting around a table together and we're comparing like, oh yeah, how many unreached people are in your thing? It's like, oh, ours is like 99.4. It's like, oh, ours is 99.5, you know? And you're like comparing the percentages of people who don't love Jesus yet. And, and we talk so much about the discouragement Instead of the Ephesians 3 God who is able to do far and abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. And it's like, if I can think about Montreal being reached with the gospel and there being about 3.6 million followers of Jesus, well then my thoughts aren't God-sized yet. That's what Ephesians 3 is telling us. We have a, a God who, is, who seems almost incomprehensible in his scope of what he can actually do. And do you know how that's gonna happen? It's going to happen through us. He's going to use us to speak life in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our families. You know, one of the big things that came up in the conference this past week in Spain was that God has no other plan B. We love to hear about God speaking to people in visions or dreams. And I think we love it because we didn't have to be the ones to do it. It's like, oh, God, speak to that person to a vision. It's like, well, I gave you a mouth. You go speak to them. That God has given us his spirit and 
our tongues to be touched by him, to be able to have words of life on our tongues, to be able to preach the foolishness of the cross and that that's our job. He does all the rest of the work. He's the one that has to get down into the hearts and cause for people to believe. You and I can't convince someone to believe. That's his job. But it's our job to go and speak and proclaim the excellencies of who Jesus is and not worry about whether they like us or not. And not worry about, and I'm not saying be a jerk, right? I'm not saying to just yell at people as they walk by you. Do you know you need to be saved? Like, I didn't. You do. You do. You need to be, like, don't do that. But the idea that we're, we're, we're bold in love and kindness and patience in proclamation. Now, we might know and believe what, what I just said, but, but we struggle with our words, don't we? We struggle with our words. But the words that we speak always start in our hearts. Let me read uh, Matthew 12, verse 33. Matthew 12, verse 33. This is probably the most disjointed sermon you're going to get all in Proverbs. Um, and I put the sermons here together and I'm preparing. I'm like, why did I only say one verse? But nonetheless, here we are. Matthew 12, verse 33. Jesus says to these religious leaders, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You see, our words always start in our hearts. The words that come off your tongue, you're not grabbing them from somewhere. They're starting inside of you. And what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders is you guys are just trying to take these bad trees and you're buying fruit at the market and putting little strings on them and you're dangling them on these trees and saying, look at how good of a tree we have. He's saying, no, the tree is rotten. The fruit seems good, but it's not actually good. Given enough time, it'll show itself to be bad. The words that we speak always start in our hearts. And so let's go back to Proverbs and that's where we're gonna end our time. We're not done yet, but we're gonna end our time there. Proverbs 16, verse 26. It says, a worker's appetite. Now, we're just getting into wisdom, right? These are gonna sometimes feel like tweets just coming at you, like, and they are in a sense. Um, a worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. You see, it's our appetite that drives our word habits. If you want to, uh, if you want to win over a, a spouse, right? The appetite to have a spouse is gonna take over your words, you're not going to sing you say it best when you say nothing at all, right? You're going to, your words are going to seem amazing and they're going to seem so wonderful and attractive. So that person is going to want to be with you. Our appetite always drives our word habits. And so the question that we have to ask is what are we hungry for when we speak? When, when words come out of our mouth, what are you actually hungry for? There are three things really, and I'll be quick about this. One is self-advancement, self-preservation, or destruction of others. What's going on inside your heart when words come out? The first category is self-advancement, self-preservation, or destruction of others. We're so consumed with ourselves. Uh, Proverbs 16, 27, a worthless man plots evil. His speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. You see, the heart plots evil. And so if you're in a conversation or about to speak to someone 
and you sense that, oh, I want to use this person. I want to be evil to this person. I want to be mean to this person. You, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have the spirit of God in you, you can stop right there. Okay, this is going on in my heart. I don't need to say anything right now. I just need to excuse myself from this conversation. Because what happens is as our heart plot, plots evil, it gives birth to speech. And the, the author of Proverbs likens that to a scorching fire. How many of you want to be in a conversation with a scorching fire? None of us. Good. This is like a reality check to make sure everyone's still with me. All right. So here are some of the sins of the mouth. You ready? This is a quick list. Lies. These are all scorching fire. Lies. Profanity. Slander. Gossip. Speaking rashly. Useless talk. Complaining. Judging being boastful, being cruel, being sexually suggestive, flattery, evil, insult, vulgar, perverse, and then you're like, well, I don't have any of those. Okay, fine. Failure to speak. That we don't say the things that we should say. That's the lump sum of what scorching fire is in the book of Proverbs. And for some of you, we've, or some of us, I'm with you, Right? We say things and we're like, I can't believe I said that. I'm like, well, I can. I can. What goes on in our hearts is so twisted sometimes, isn't it? It's in there. It's in there. So that's the first category. Self-advancement, self-preservation, destruction of others. The second appetite that we can have is this, this self-justification. That I want to make myself feel better. Have you ever walked in a room and you're like, I am the most put together person in this room? Rarely, <laughs> rarely. Uh, Proverbs 17.5 says, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. We love self-justification. We like to compare ourselves to one another so that we think that we're fine. At least I'm not as messed up as those people. I sometimes think that as a, the church, we do ministry to the poor, not because we really love the poor, but because it makes us feel better about ourselves that we're not that messed up. But here's the thing about Jesus and his heart is he so desperately loves the poor. He desperately loves them. He is drawn to those that we're often so repulsed by. He doesn't want for us to be a people who are mocking those who, it's like, have you ever said, well, they deserve that? That's mocking God. Their choices put them in that place where they deserve that thing. Oh, and you deserve the place that you have from him. It's mocking him. The third category is um, our appetite sometimes is for self-gratification. It says, an evildoer, Proverbs 17, 4, an evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. An evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to mischievous tongue. You see, our, our, our silence, our silence at evil sometimes is like cheering in the Colosseum. I visited Rome, I don't know, four, four-ish years ago and going to the Colosseum, it, you walk in there and I start weeping. 
because they're, the story of what happened in the Colosseum is told all over the place and that they would drag Christians in there and that thousands of people would come together and just watch the Christians be mauled by bears or lions or have to fight one another or all these, all these horrific things. And you think, oh man, I would never cheer for that. But the, sometimes our silence, our silence, because we're, we're self-gratifying. Our silence at evil is like cheering at the Colosseum. Words always start in our heart. Words always start in our heart. And that's where God actually wants to do a lot of the work with his gospel. He doesn't just want to come and save us and be like, okay, you're free now. He wants to change our hearts to be just like him, to remove the self-advancement and self-preservation and destruction of others, to remove the self-justification because you don't need to justify yourself and to remove the self-gratification. He wants to remove that and replace it with him. And the thing is, words always have consequences. Proverbs 18, 6 and 7 says, A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Um, sometimes we'll see people, uh, I'll be with my wife, this is usually where I make this comment with her, um, but we'll see people, and I'll see the way some guy is talking to someone else, I'm like, oh, that guy's never been punched in the mouth before. Not that I want to go and punch him, that's not what I'm saying. But like, getting punched in the mouth does something for you. Especially when you're a kid, it's like, oh, that's a limit. Oh, I don't get to say that. Oh, okay, this, this is not healthy. And yet what the author of Proverbs is saying is like, if you're a fool running your mouth, there's earthly consequences. Like someone's gonna beat you up, but it's not just there. It's that life or death come as well. And in Matthew 12, where we were earlier, Jesus says to those, those religious leaders, in Matthew 12, verse 36 and 37. He says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. So there's two ways to approach God. You can either approach God with the words that, that you're saying, or you can approach God with the word that he has said. You can approach him with, no, but I did all these nice things and I wasn't mean and yeah, I was mean in that situation, but that person deserved it. And like, we have this whole list of things and God says, okay, I'll judge you based on that. But if it's not perfect, I'm not gonna judge you perfect. Or you can be judged on this side. It is finished, it is done. My word over you is my son, my daughter, welcome. Enter into, into my, my presence. Words always have consequences. And the consequence of Jesus' word over us is eternal life. Now, and I'm really wrapping up here, all right? How do we tame the tongue? How do we tame the tongue? It's like, okay, our tongues are crazy. They're gonna get us in all kinds of trouble. They do things that I wish that they didn't do. They say things that I wish they didn't say. How am I supposed to get this under control? Do you know what religion does? It says, okay, I'm gonna leave here and I'm gonna try really hard. I'm gonna tame my tongue. All right, well, here's James 3, 8 for you. It says, no human being can tame the tongue. Oh, that's encouraging, isn't it? It is restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, especially on Sunday morning. It's like, yeah, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Amazing, right? We bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. It's like how many times we have hands lifted like this inside of our church gathering, and then we leave and the person cuts us off, we're really good at putting a finger up. Or at least going like this. Or going into French words that none of us should say, right? All these things that we do. 
we can't tame the tongue, but this is where the spirit given to us, when we let him take control over our lives, when we say, I'm needy, I can't do it, he does things that we aren't able to actually do. Galatians 5, book in the, the New Testament, Galatians 5, verse 16, says this, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Then verse 22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the spirit, let us walk by the spirit. So five questions to end. This is all wisdom. As we're walking through life and we wanna speak, because most of us wanna speak, first question we ask is, why do I want to speak? Why do I want to speak? I don't have time to go through all these. Proverbs 16, 20 says, whoever gives thought to the word will discover good and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Why do I want to speak? What's my motive? What's my motive? Begin there. Am I wanting to serve the Lord and others by speaking or am I looking to just serve myself by speaking? What's my, what's my motive in this? And if it's you, if you want to seek, if you're seeking after yourself in your advancement, then just be silent and take it to the Lord. Talk to him about it. But if it's for others, then keep going. Why do I want to speak? The second thing is, what do I actually say? If I'm going to speak to someone and my motives are good, what do I actually have to say? Some of us are so quick with our mouths, aren't we? We're like ready to respond before the person's even done. That's not good active listening. Right? It's being quiet. It's thinking about it. It's what did they actually say? Did I hear them well? Do I have a good motive? The second thing is, okay, what do I actually say? What's the content? Proverbs 16, 24 says, gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness of the soul and health to the body. Are you bringing good news to them or just good advice? Are you bringing morality to them or are you bringing them Jesus? Because your, the morals and ethics are really good, they don't change people. Only the gospel of Jesus does. Only the spirit of God can. And so are we bringing people good ethics and good morals or are we bringing them the good news that you are not your mistakes, you are not these things, you are not your image, this is who you are in Christ if you're speaking to someone who's a follower of Jesus. And it says that the gospel is sweet. Have you ever spoken to someone about Jesus? I remember speaking to a reporter years ago. We, we were on this, when we first launched our, our church years ago, we were on this TV show. We didn't, didn't even know what we were getting into. I think the guy's name is Patrice Lagasse. Like he's a well-known reporter in my kitchen. And I'm talking to him about Jesus on camera. And he keeps trying to divert me into like weird ethic conversations. I'm like, no, 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 it's all about the resurrection of Jesus. He shuts off the camera. And he asked me more questions about Jesus and I'm speaking. He said, man, if that Jesus were true, I'd want to follow him. He's like, now I don't believe in God. Right? He was really quick to say that, but he made that proclamation. Why? Because the gospel is sweet. People have never heard of this Jesus before. And when they, when they ask, yeah, but how does it get into the nitty gritty of morals? It's like, but it starts here. You don't start with morals and ethics. You start with him and let him lead you into things that you don't even want to be led into. But it's not about you, it's about him. What do I say? What's the content that I bring? The third thing is, when do I say it? When do I say it? Some of us feel like because we feel like we have something to say, we need to say it right now. 
most things you need to say don't need to be said right now, especially if they're confrontational. We sometimes like to, to, because we're heated and we're excited, we want to just get into it. Those are great times to walk away because you often end up saying things or doing things that you're like, I wish I could have that back again. The wisdom of the spirit is saying, you don't need to deal with that right now. When do you deal with it? Not every surgeon, right? If you have a torn meniscus, the surgeon's not gonna throw you on the table, rush everyone in and like just start slashing at your knee, right? It's like, no, this can wait. This is what you need to do until the time for surgery. The same thing is, is true with our words. Wait till the right moments. Because in the right moment, even a rebuke can be sweet. Uh, my wife and I, we, here's more of our life. Ta-da. Um, my wife and I, when we want to confront one another on something, we do it on a date night or a time when we're having fun. You're like, why are you ruining it? It's like, no, no, no. We do it in the context where we know we love one another. We know we're for one another. And hey, let's talk about this thing now because it's not in the midst of this heated exchange. When is the right time? Now, the fourth question is, what happens if I don't say anything? What happens if I don't say anything? Proverbs 16, 23 says, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. You see, the wise persuade people from death. The wise persuade people from death because we so easily run toward things that aren't good for us, don't we? We've seen, if you've been a part of the church for long enough, you've seen people who have been following Jesus and are no longer following Jesus because they've run after something that is going to bring them ultimate death. But you and I have been given the words of life. What happens if we don't say something? Well, death happens. Death happens. That so often we keep our, our gospel holstered. I know I'm using guns again, I'm sorry. Uh, I wasn't even in the US recently, but... Um, so often we keep our gospel holstered. We walk around, you know, our neighborhood like, hey, I'm going I'm to be friendly to everyone. I'm just going to be, I'm going to be nice. And we, we keep the good news that goes after the gates of hell and explodes death and brings resurrection life. We keep them holstered because we want everyone to like us. And I say we because I struggle with the same things. We believe the same lies, don't we? We so easily forget that our neighbors and family members and coworkers, if they don't know Jesus, will spend an eternity. And I know winter in Quebec is long, but that's like five months or maybe six, I don't know. But it's not eternity. COVID was long, but that's not eternity. And people will spend an eternity away from the one that they were made for but you and I are armed with the spirit and his word. You and I are armed with the spirit and his word and I'll end in just a second on that. Last question, what happens if I follow the spirit though? What happens if I follow the spirit and speak? Proverbs 10 verse 11 says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. And then verse 21, the lips of the righteous feed many. If you follow the spirit in his leading and speaking, what he wants you to speak, you're like a fountain and a food bank. But not just a food bank where it's like, well, this, this food's almost expired. It's like, this is the best food. And this isn't the water that's like, has too much chlorine in it because they dumped a bunch of stuff in the St. Lawrence, so they need to clean that up with some chemicals. It's, now this is the pristine water. This is the best water. You become a fountain of life and you feed many. That's you. 
That's not me as a pastor. That's not a ministry leader. That's not the, that's you if you're a follower of Jesus. This isn't just a ministry for the few. It's everyone that you are priests, not the, the Catholic priest idea, but the idea that you are sent as a mediator between God and others to proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. It's not someone else's job. Whoever the Spirit puts on your heart, that's who you're led to go and speak words to. You see, there's so many in Montreal spiritually sick and dying, and we have the medicine, don't we? We have the medicine. And someone used the analogy uh, this past week of, you know, being, sitting at someone's bedside, they're dying, and you're holding their hand with the medicine in your other hand, just watching them die, saying, I wish there was something I could do. I wish there was something I could do. That's the reality that we live in every day. That medicine has the power to bring healing to anyone in our city, anyone in Montreal. So the challenge is, do you know Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, well, today you should know him. 18 years ago, he hijacked my life. My life has been completely different not because I changed a bunch of things, but because he changed my heart. It was like someone gave me a new heart, new mind, new desires. I didn't even know I wanted these things. It's because of him. If you're a follower of Jesus, do you cling to, to the word? Are you dependent on him and begging him for more wisdom? Or are you okay because you read the Bible through a few times and you've gone to a theology class? She's like, I don't need more wisdom. He's saying, I wanna, I wanna keep downloading wisdom onto you. I have more updates than Microsoft does, and they're annoying, aren't they, right? He's like, I just want to keep downloading more and more wisdom into you so that you would live lives that are real life. Do you cling? Are we people who are slow to speak and quick to speak to him? We're slow to speak to others and quick to speak to him. In conversations, you can slow down. You can think. You can pray. You can ask for breaks. You can ask to speak a different time. You can ask God for wisdom in that moment. Maybe he'll give it to you in that moment. But are you slow to speak to others and quick to speak to him? And then finally, do you want wisdom in how you speak? I do. I really want wisdom. Not so people look and say, wow, I've never met a pastor with so much wisdom before. I want wisdom because I want life to come into every person that I encounter. I want real resurrection life to happen in our neighborhood. I want for people to know him. So give me that wisdom. So I'll end with this, what if, what if? What if Montreal, what if Montreal, and I know like we're in the West Island, great. What if Montreal and the West Island, the island, okay? And even off the island maybe, right? What if the Montreal area was set on fire with our words of proclamation and encouragement? What if that happened? Right? We're always like, well, what will they think of me? What if I say this? Will I lose this thing? Well, what if the opposite happens? What if Montreal is set on fire through our proclamation and our encouragement? I've spoken to people before almost cynically about Jesus, and they're like, yes, I want him. And I'm like, what? That was the worst gospel presentation I've ever made in my life. And they're like, yeah, that's what I want. Like, okay. Like, that's, that's what Jesus does. He doesn't need this polished thing that, that you memorize. He wants people to, to declare him and who he is and what he's done. And what if Montreal becomes the most reached place in the world because of our sharing about him? 
That would be good news, right? Then I could go back to Europe and they're like, oh, 0.5%. I'm like, 99%, right? 99% of Montrealers know Jesus. Man, I would love for at least every Montrealer to get to hear about Jesus. Because there's so many people that I meet that they've never heard the gospel before. They've heard the history of what happened here in this province, but they've never heard of who Jesus really is. And what if we love people? What if the love of God overcame us in such a way that we love people so much that our self-obsessed fears were replaced with gospel-drenched faith? Would we believe that he could actually do these things? And how are people gonna know unless someone preaches? That's you. That's you. Most people are not gonna come in here on a Sunday morning to hear some guy preach for way too long and be like, yes, that's what I need. That God has equipped you, given you his spirit, has given you people in your relational sphere of influence so that you can proclaim and show who he is and what he's done. When Jesus rescued the demoniac, thousands of demons come out of this guy. The guy says, can I please go with you? If there's anyone that Jesus should have invited to go with him, it's a man who just had thousands of demons in him. And Jesus says, no, 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 go back home and tell them of what I did for you. You're like, man, I don't have a, I didn't go to the evangelism class. Go back to your neighborhood and tell the mercy that Jesus has had on you. Go back to your, go back to your, your place of employment and tell of the grace that God has had on you. And do it because you know him. Do it because you love him not to earn his love. So may the Spirit chain our tongues. May the Spirit chain our tongues to boldly de declare the excellencies of him. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna respond. Jesus, I thank you that you are here. Sometimes it feels weird to apologize for talking about you for too long. I know we get these strange cultural ideas, Jesus, about how long we're supposed to sit in a place and what we're supposed to do, and, and we have eight-second eight attention spans and all these things. But I'm asking you, Spirit, to override all that sociological data, that you would take your word and you would burn it deep into us, and that you, Jesus, would become uh, very real to us, and that you would... Um, viscerally move in us in such a way that you would burn away all of the self-obsession that we have or the self-motivated fears. And, you know, we let our jobs and our retirements and our vacations and all these, all these non-eternal things get in the way. So on behalf of everyone here in this room, I'm asking you to take all those things that don't matter and put them in their proper place. For those that you have already rescued, Jesus, would you send us back with excitement and boldness, ready to minister and care for and be priests in our neighborhood and our workplace and our family to serve and give our lives away because we already have everything we need in you. And I pray for those who don't yet know you that today you would hijack their hearts and that you would bring them into their kingdom, into your kingdom. Help us to be a, a confident, bold, yet kind and loving people in the city. We love you. Amen. All right, so we're going to respond. We're going to respond through singing in just a moment. But right now, uh, we're going to take uh, communion. And so if you don't have one of these little shot cups of grape juice, 
and a little wafer, then you can get one from the back. Um, this, is, this is deeply profound because it represents what we talked about at the beginning, the word being made flesh. So I'm going to wait for everyone to get these, but I'm going to explain them as they're grabbing them. Uh, we're going we're gonna to take first this little wafer on the top, which represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. That Jesus didn't hang out in a cosmic corner of the galaxy somewhere hoping that we could figure it out on our own, but instead he came and he suffered and was broken in our place. So we're going to take that first in remembrance of him. And then secondly, we're going to drink this, this little, little juice which Jesus on the night that he was betrayed and sent to be, to be crucified said this is the blood of the new covenant. It's a promise, a word, a word that you will have full forgiveness because of my blood being poured out for you. So I think everyone has those now. So you can take of the bread. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and eat it. And the second, Jesus said, this is the blood of my new covenant. This promise is being made with you. We're being reminded of that this morning, that if you are in Christ, you are free. It is finished is a word that's proclaimed over you. So take and drink in remembrance of him. I'm gonna invite Joel back up. And Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done. I pray that you would um, keep moving, keep ministering, keep changing our hearts. Help us to love you more. Help us to be wise with our words. And thank you that the word over us is beloved son or daughter of the father. We need you. Amen.